Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil Ecolona, and this is Nashville. Each weekday at noon, you'll find me here on 90.3 FM for WPLN.org. This is is Nashville is a brand new daily show here at WPLN News. We'll go deeper into the news of the day and bring you perspectives you didn't know you were missing. Join us as we journey into the identity of our city and region. Two years ago, a deadly pandemic was just beginning to hit home here in Tennessee. It was just over the past weekend in 2020 that the first known COVID case was confirmed in our state. Since then, the state has tracked more than 2 million cases, and this week will likely break 25,000 deaths. On today's show, we're going to look back at the past few years and take pulse on the moment in our town as we enter year three of the pandemic. Later, we'll meet a few nurses to get a sense of what this has been like for them. But first, I'd like to welcome Dr. Alex Jahangir, the first chair of the Nashville COVID Task Force. Dr. Jahangir, welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you so much for having me on on this day. It's great to have you. So we're here with COVID in Nashville and in Middle Tennessee. Can you help me understand where we're at with the numbers? You know, it is kind of today is a good day to have this discussion. We are now have seen over 206,000 Nashvillians who've tested positive for the virus. Hmm. And unfortunately, 1,569 of our fellow Nashvillians have died because of coronavirus. But as we, as I join you today, um, we've come, we've come down from this huge surge of Omicron that we just saw. And so now our numbers are um, 12 per 100,000 Nashvillians are testing positive. Our case positivity number is 6.3%. And 65% of Nashvillians have been vaccinated. So those last three numbers I gave you are really um, good, promising numbers. Um, that's 65% being consistent with the national average. Now, people I talk to have a wide range of opinions on the pandemic. Some think it's over or close. Others are still very cautious, like myself. Can you give us some clarity or advice on how we should really look at this? You know, I think the best way for us to approach this is one has to really evaluate um, your own personal self. So let me let me explain what I mean by this. So the virus is still in our community. It is at a much better. Um, it's not as, as spread as it has been at some points. But somebody who's healthy, like like me, I don't have any pre-existing conditions. Somebody who's vaccinated, um, the probability of getting very sick is much lower than, than two years ago. However, I think what most people need to realize is there are individuals who, um, for a variety of reasons, whether they have pre-existing conditions or whether they have a loved one who's perhaps at home battling cancer and is on um, chemotherapy, um, we need to each look at our own risk profile and, and do what makes sense for our circle. Now, with that being said, it is unquestionable that the most likely way to have this virus be more of a nuisance than something that will um, kill you or um, leave you permanently impaired is by being vaccinated. And we've seen this over and over again, the data keeps showing this. So I think that is that is what's really important is everyone now at this point in the pandemic really needs to evaluate for themselves their risk profile. 
Now, we got a question on Twitter from Carrie Tyler. Between COVID hospitalizations and healthcare worker stress slash burnout, how can we tell when higher risk activities should be cut out? Say like riding bicycles outside around cars or trees or not putting too personal of a point on this or, or should we be? I mean. Well, you know, I think one thing that has always been over the past two years, the experience I've had and, um, is our hospital systems have really been um, really resilient and Nashvillians in general have been resilient um, to be able to take to do what needs to happen so that we can take care of people, not only for those who are ill with COVID, but those who are involved in, in accidents and need care or those who have heart conditions and may need heart surgery. Um, but a good guide as to disease activity, and I think this is something that moving forward we'll need to really evaluate, is the CDC just put out a guidance that looks at the disease activity based on hospital capacity and based on um, how quickly cases are, are happening. And so that may be a metric if, if um, your listener would like to follow. But but let me just, as somebody who works daily in healthcare, who who is a a trauma surgeon my day job mm-hmm. um our healthcare systems have so strongly over the past two years done everything that needs to happen to make sure national injuries are taken care of and so um i think that is the one worry i i don't have right now and and you know it's really important for everyone to hear now take us back to march 7th 2020 two years ago i understand this is when you first yeah. got the call from the mayor's office is that right yeah, so March 7th was Saturday, um, Saturday night. Um, I was actually having dinner with some friends at, at uh, my house. And, you know, I was I was a chair of the Board of Health, and we knew coronavirus was heading this way. But I received a call that, that was kind of atypical to receive a call at Saturday night from the health department. And I went into my bedroom and took the call. And and I could just – I just remembered, gosh, I, I don't actually know what this means. But I knew it wouldn't mean that things would be status quo um, – for a while and I came out and my wife could see the look on my face and uh, you know we, we had our dinner and then afterwards um, my wife and I chatted and it, it, we realized that you know the first case had arrived but it definitely wasn't going to be the last case and the next day um, I went to what would become the first of over a hundred press conferences the mayor and I did um, in which we tried our best to inform inform Nashvilleans of what was going on and, and that's how it started for me. Now, I'm taking myself back to March 2020, and it was quite a scary time. And there was a lot of uncertainty, and we all just really wanted answers. I do want to play a bit of a press conference from March 13th, 2020. Dr. Michael Caldwell had just become the new director of public health. He opened it up, and one reporter started hammering him with questions. Let's hear a little bit of that. So we've, we've got time for, I don't know, a few questions. How many and then kids we're do you available have can actually test the virus? And we'll, and we'll have uh, one-on-ones as well. How many kids well. do you have citywide? You said you had the resources, Mayor. How many kids do you have? How can you test? South Korea has tested hundreds of thousands of people. The United States is much fewer than that. There was a big screw-up. You all know it. You're lying to us. We want to know how many tests you have. Where can you go to get one? And are they going to be free? I think um, that your feelings and it's not feelings, it's facts. The way you're expressing yourself is angry, and so are a lot of other people. And I hear you. Okay, so separate yourself from the bull we're getting from Washington. What what are these calls that you had? What are they telling you? And be happy, don't worry. That's what you told us on Sunday. Now, 
That was quite the moment in history. Dr. Jahangir, you actually stepped in after this interaction with Dr. Caldwell, goes on a little bit longer, and you explain that the answer the reporting is, reporter is looking for is simply not that straightforward. What's, was this moment a real turning point for you? Yeah, you know, um, gosh, hearing that really, my heart rate's up already again. Mm. It's, it's really interesting. Um, yeah, um, you know, I think what that reporter and and, um, and, and what many people, um, not just the reporters, right? Nashvilleians, my family, your family, there's a lot of uncertainty and anxiety around what this all means. And, and one thing that Mayor Cooper, uh, when he and I first met to talk about this task force role, said, look, I want you to always be transparent to the public. I want the science to drive it, and I, I want you to always be honest um, with with him and, and thus the public. And and so if, if you play that along further, my first answer to that reporter was, look, we just don't know. And I think what what is what's critical then, I think what should be critical in, in any situation like this is is people who are are involved in in the leadership of, of whatever entity is is leading should always be honest and and. And for us, it was um, there was a lot of uncertainty then. Um, on two days after that is when we declared a public health emergency and ended up having to um, restrict business, um, you know, restaurants and, and, and other things because we we're starting to see this virus surge. And, and I think people rightfully needed to know what was going on and why decisions were being made. And um, gosh, there was that 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 press conference really encapsulated a lot of the anxiety that all of us were feeling, um, Peter, the reporter, being being um, very verbal about it. And like you said, there's a lot of stress and anxiety and pressure at the time. Do you feel like we're in a better place now here in Nashville right now? I do. Um, and, and let me explain that. So, you know, we've been through a lot. I think we should not uh, minimize what, what all of us have gone through. But here's here's why I say we're in a better place. First of all, as um, we have a much clearer sense of what this virus is and what it does, we have the vaccine, we have antivirals, we have antibody treatments, we have testing now that's becoming more and more available, so that you can tell if you're tested positive and get access to those medications if needed sooner. And um, and and there's a level of um, there's a large level of um, natural immunity, frankly, in this city, especially after Omicron. Um, so right now, this moment of time, we're we're at a good place in this disease. Um, but again, what I want to highlight is is we also need to be empathetic for our neighbors and our community and recognize that not everyone's in the same boat as as me, a, a 40-something-year-old healthy person who's vaccinated. There's, there's a lot going on. Um, I think that one cannot minimize the health risks to certain individuals. One cannot minimize the anxiety some people have as we start really reemerging from um, you know masks and and limited capacities. And we just need to be empathetic and sympathetic with our, our community and neighbors. And, and I think that's my big takeaway at this point. Um, but we are in a much better place than we were um, two years ago, for sure. Now, you're working on a book about your experience, right? I am. Um, I actually, um, we finished it. Um, I finished it, and it's actually um, on pre-order now. But what I really tried to do is, um, you know, wasn't, there was no intention initially to, to write a book, but I kept a journal. Um, of every day, you know, Peter, Peter White and I's in, in exchange there and, and everything. And, and what I realized in this one year, the very first year of COVID is what the book really focuses on. This community went through so much, right? All of what we went through with COVID, but all the stuff we went through with social injustice, with the bombings, with, um, you know, 
parents raising kids and, and having and parent and people having elderly family members. There was so much we went all, we went into um, as all of us. And so um, I just tried to capture some of that and, and really capture that one year of Nashville and, and what it meant for me, but and hopefully what it meant for a lot of people. You really mentioned something in your book I want to ask you about real quick. You grew up in Nashville from the time you were seven, yet at your first press conference, you mentioned that. Tell us why. You know, I um, I immigrated to Nashville when I was um, six, um, going on seven, um, from, from war-torn Iran. Um, you know, it, it just, what's going on with Ukraine right now really resonates with me because that was my situation back in 80, 84. And... Um, you know, while this community gave, has given me so much and gave me so much, um, I still occasionally felt like I still wasn't fully a, a quote-unquote native Nashvilleian. And I felt like I had to share that at the press conference because um, this is my community and, and that um, whatever decisions we were going to make um, moving forward, um, I wanted people to know, look, this I owe so much to this community and my family lives here and my parents live here and and I'm grateful for what Nashville has given to me um, up until this point. And, and my hope is that I could at least give back some of the same to the community that gave me so much. And, and that's why I mentioned that at that first press, at that maybe second press conference. Mm-hmm. Now, after the break, we're talking with nurses about their experiences during the pandemic. What do we need to do for our nurses who continue to play a vital role in this ongoing pandemic? What changes would you like to see? My God, I, I, I want to highlight what the nurses, the medical assistants, the PAs, the, everyone who, who's taken care of people has gone through so much. I think with our nurses, listen, I don't think even I, who literally every day works in a hospital, appreciates everything that nurses have gone through over these past two years. Um, true healthcare heroes are those nurses um, that you're, you, you'll speak to. Um, you know, I, operationally, I think we need to make sure they're um, – compensated for what the work they do do and and gosh they do a lot um i think there's a lot of of um, stress and trauma that a lot of our nursing colleagues have gone through that we need to make sure um, we take care of um, their needs there so that they can continue to serve what we need is continuing to have these experienced nurses provide care for us decades down the road right and 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 then i think um we need to encourage um we need to show, highlight the, how amazing nursing is as a career and, and encourage the next generation of nurses, the students who are, who are currently in, in school, to consider nursing as a career because it really is such a noble profession. And I mean, I could spend the whole show telling you how, how, how grateful I am to the nurses who taught me so much in my training, but who over the past two years have gone through so much. And I, and I worry if we don't take care of our nurses, we really will have a crisis, um, not just in a year or two from now, but um, the next generation. Wise words. That is Dr. Alex Jahangir, Nashville's first COVID-19 task force chair. Dr. Jahangir, thank you so much for joining us. We're taking a quick break. When we come back, we'll invite our senior health reporter to share his reflections and look back at the past few years with some of our nurses. Don't go away. This is Nashville. Kalila Colonna, and this is Nashville. 
On today's show, we're reflecting on the past two years of the COVID-19 pandemic. Just a few weeks into lockdown in March 2020, Meharry Medical College President Dr. James Hildreth addressed the public. Going into year Our job three of the pandemic. is fairly straightforward, and that is to remain safely at home. And consider this. Would we prefer to wake up to a headline that millions of Americans have filed unemployment claims or that millions of Americans have died from COVID-19 disease? That might sound like hyperbole, but that is the stark reality we're faced with. And clearly the latter is unthinkable. So let us continue to do our part and remain safer at home. And remember, this virus needs a vector to transmit itself from one person to another. And we are its vector. So the goal is to not be a vector. So Nashville, please don't be a vector, and we're gonna get through this. We are going to get through this, hindsight, oh man. Heading into year three, we're still getting through this. I'd like to invite our guests. Charlotte Garwood is an ICU nurse at Vanderbilt. She is joined by WPLN senior health reporter, Blake Farmer. Thanks to you both for being on the show. Happy to be here, and Charlotte, good to meet you. Good to meet you too, I've heard your voice a lot. We all have. It's a glorious voice that we enjoy <laughs> listening to for health updates. Now, Blake, reflect on this early moment with Dr. Mm. Hildreth and what has happened since. Well, I, I mean, I, I well, first of all, Dr. Hildreth, what an asset to the community. Just uh, I've so enjoyed getting to know him uh, over the last two years because he he's so perfectly set up with his expertise to kind of guide the city. Uh, uh, but I, you know, I, I think when 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 he mentioned millions of deaths, that seemed hard to imagine because it seemed like that would all happen so soon, like right now. Um, and now looking back, you realize, oh, it was drawn out. And, and indeed, the country is about to hit a million deaths in the next couple of weeks. Um, here we are, you know, more than two years out from from the pandemic beginning. So, uh, it, not hyperbole at all. He was exactly right. Now, Charlotte, you're an ICU nurse, which I imagine is very intense. But first off, let yeah. me ask you, how are you doing right there today? How are you doing at this moment? Uh, um, it comes and goes. It's I'm, I'm a lot of things. Um, I'm exhausted. Um, I'm trying to get through the trauma of the last two years, but I'm also trying to be hopeful and and stay positive and stay in this moment um, for the people around me, for the life that we are trying to live each day um, as we're surviving this pandemic. What were your emotions like two years ago as the spread of COVID, COVID began? Oh man, I'm terrified. Um, I remember the first day I went back to work after our spring break and I had two patients with COVID and I'd been keeping up you know, with how it was coming across the country um, I knew what was going on in New York, and I was almost in a panic state those first couple hours of that shift um, because I didn't feel prepared. I, Although we had PPE there, I just felt immediately overwhelmed and was imagining me getting infected and bringing that home to my husband <laughs> and orphaning my child. And um, I really was playing through in my head, like, okay, the letters I need to write to my son for the special events in his life that I won't be there for. Now, the numbers may be dropping, but working in an ICU is maybe, probably, as taxing as ever. Tennesseans are dying at a pace that was unimaginable early in the pandemic, with an average of 72 deaths per day in late February. Charlotte, I'm sure a lot of our listeners, and me included, 
we have no idea what that's like. It's, it's terrible. Um, it's, it's been so sad um, to watch people die, um, to see them struggle, and then to know that the family and community that they're leaving a hole in their lives um, with their passing. When I think about the last two years, it, it really falls into these two categories where there was the time before the vaccine and then after. Um, and there's a lot of emotions that go into that first, you know, nine to 12 months. And then it kind of shifted in how we're dealing with, uh, or the patients we're seeing, I guess, in our ICU. Um, and it's just sad that it still goes on. I mean, we still have patients in our ICU who are going to die from COVID. Mm. Um, so it, it feels unnecessary at this point for so many um, of these people to lose their lives. Now, Meg Cochran is a bedside cardiology nurse who spent a good portion of the shutdown on a COVID union, unit. She calls this time that we're still in the darkest night of the soul of healthcare. Let's take a listen. Going into year three of the pandemic, even just saying that kind of sends a shiver down my spine. Each year of the pandemic has had its own unique flavor. Um, the first year being total fear, unknown, stress, shutdown. Um, in the second year when the vaccine came out, a lot of hope and excitement and hoping that this would be the end of it. And then thinking about year three, I mean, that just brings instant fatigue. Mm, instant fatigue. Now, Charlotte, you kind of alluded to this earlier, but how do Meg's comments really resonate with you now? Oh, definitely agree. That first year, the the fear, there was so much unknown. Um, and the medicine that we know and practice in critical care and in the ICU, it's almost like these rules had kind of gone out the window because we just didn't understand yet how this virus was going to behave in patients. Um, so there was a lot of unknown and it led into this helplessness that we just couldn't save people. Um, ARDS is a pretty common diagnosis um, that people end up on ventilators and they have these stiff lungs. And we've learned a lot about how do people sur survive this. Um, and with COVID, we weren't able to do that. Um, we were seeing blood clots that would just bring down someone just instantly. They would really like die very quickly from a blood clot, whether it went to their lungs or their brain. Um, it was, yeah, it was just staggering um, amounts of loss and not knowing how to help them and realizing in time, like we, we just had to wait and see if people would get better or not, what the course of their illness would take. Um, second year, yeah, was really has been tough. For myself, as I look to the third year, I know that I've normalized this. I think, I mean, COVID is something that we are going to continue to see and take care of these patients. So it's become less of a fear and more of almost a routine um, diagnosis that I expect to take care of in my ICU. Mm -hmm. You know, thinking about that fatigue that Meg described, and Charlotte just spoke to Blake, I can imagine you felt that too as a reporter, right? Well. My job is so much easier than Charlotte's. It's not, you know, it's not even close. Um, I, I get to tell uh, the stories uh, of of someone like Charlotte, but um, I, I, every time I uh, talk to an ICU nurse, um, I, I just can't think. But you know, 
thank them. I mean, I, I hang up the phone because it usually is uh, over some sort of virtual connection, uh, thanking them for what they do because it is immensely harder than, than anything I, I do. Um, not only do they have to work 12-hour shifts, uh, some of them five days a week uh, at points during this pandemic, uh, but they also are, are on their feet. They're moving. You know, one, one nurse um, was, was trying to help me understand why it really was so hard to take care of folks on life support. Mm-hmm. So there's been this life support that's been in short supply at times called ECMO, where the blood is pumped out of the body, oxygenated outside the body. Charlotte, are you, are you an ECMO nurse? I do take care of patients on ECMO, yes. I, I thought maybe so. And and so, you know, when they're having to, uh, uh, some of these patients end up unconscious while they're under this mm. uh, therapy, but also uh, they need to move around if they are awake. And to walk an ECMO patient mm-hmm. around daily, I, I I hear you on the other end here, because it, it's, mm. um, I mean, it takes four or five people to have this person who has all their blood pumping outside of their body, something could go bad really quickly. Yeah. And they're having to walk them around maybe a couple of times per shift. Um, and, and and you maybe have a couple of these ECMO patients that you're caring for. It's just uh, you, ha- you literally have their lives in your hand, and it is the nurses um, who decide how many uh, people uh, a hospital can care for because, um, you know, nurses are, are, are who they need to, to have patients in the bed. Charlotte, tell but, us about that. What What is that? What's that like to walk somebody around an ECMO patient? It like you, like Blake says, it is a labor um, that takes a whole little village. There are many of us involved, including, you know, including the perfusionist who that machine, the ECMO machine is their specialty and they're keeping their eye on all of these lines. And it's crazy if you see it, these huge tubes um, that have the patient's blood that they are supporting and making sure they don't get dislodged. Our respiratory therapists are there with us and usually, yeah, a couple of nurses as well. What's exciting about walking someone on ECMO is it means they're getting better. Um, so if it's post COVID and they're able, they've survived and they're out of bed and they're walking, we're starting to really celebrate because it's gone from us doing the heavy lifting of keeping them alive to now it's like, okay, now it's your turn to work hard because um, you're getting better. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's a lot, but it, uh, it it's kind of exciting. But there's, there's a whole stage um, that patients go through with ECMO. And initially, they are probably sedated heavily, maybe even paralyzed um, just because they've been so critically ill and unstable. So it takes some time for them to get stabilized enough that we can start to wake them up and interact with them and get them moving again. You know, I spent about 11 days in the hospital in 2012. I had appendicitis that almost killed me. Procedure almost went obviously very haywire. And what the nurses who took care of me and I feel are responsible for me healing, one one thing they told me was, you know, if you want to get out of the hospital, you have to start acting like you're not in the hospital, meaning you have to get up and walk. And the time that care that they took to walk me around and hearing you all share these stories, I can only imagine just how compounded that responsibility and that fear must have been during a global pandemic. But, you know, I'm curious. I can only imagine the amount of frustration that really comes with this job, Charlotte. And I'm sure you had COVID patients who ended up in your ICU who never got vaccinated. You mentioned that a little bit before. Tell me more about what that's like for you. That, I, th- I think that's when the morale for myself and I think a lot of the nurses I work with really hit rock bottom. And, and for me, it started last spring because at that point, the vaccines were available enough that 
the people we were seeing could have gotten one. And it was, it was just hard to even wrap our head around it because I was so excited for the vaccine. Like this idea that we were coming to the, you know, really the, the bright light at the end of the tunnel. Um, so it was just unreal to, to imagine that there were people out there who didn't want it, that would reject it. Um, and so then that turned into anger. Um, and it's really, it, it's challenging because we are caring people and we're there to do our best and to feel this anger towards this patient who you're trying to care for and do the best for and and their families. And um, it, it really tore at me and I know a lot of others because that conflict within ourselves, like to feel so much anger and yet, okay, walk in that room and do your best um, and, and don't let it reflect. Um, because, you know, these are decisions that were made but they shouldn't suffer <laughs> while they're already suffering so much um, from me being angry at them. If you're just joining us, this is Nashville. I'm your host, Khalil A. Colonna. WPLN's Blake Farmer is with us as we talk about this moment in the pandemic. So Blake, I understand a lot of nurses have left the field or became travel nurses. Help us understand why. Well, uh, you know, it's complicated for everybody. You know, I mean, there, there are some folks who um, saw opportunities to help out in hot spots early on in the pandemic and, and kind of, I mean, travel nursing's not new, but, but I think uh, saw an opportunity at the beginning of the pandemic to really help out. As we've gone along, the more, uh, the more, the more stories that I hear, the more I'm hearing nurses through the pandemic have realized, you know what, this job is only getting harder and harder. And yeah, I've gotten a few little raises along the way, but boy, even still, although I think the rates are starting to come down now, uh, you could go out and be a travel nurse if you had that flexibility and, you know, make your year's salary in a couple months. Mm. Um, so, I mean, a big difference in pay and beyond the pay, um, a little bit of a different tempo for your life. If you know that you're going to sort of be on the grind for, you know, uh, maybe you're going to be asked to pick up overtime shifts anyway. Well, maybe it's a nicer thing to have 12, 13 weeks and know that you could go take three weeks off after that. Um, so it kind of makes it a little easier to look at the pandemic in 13 week chunks instead of a job that you're going to be going uh, to forever and ever. So um, lots of folks uh, took that route. Frankly, we don't even know how many uh, travel nurses have headed or have had headed out the door to be travel nurses, but it is a huge issue for virtually any hospital right now. You know, Charlotte, as we move forward, what are you taking away from your experience from the past two years? Oh, so much gratitude. Hmm. Um, mm -hmm. The team I work with, um, it's, I can't imagine have gone, going through this with anyone else. Our nurse practitioners just stepped up and let us um, really be the providers who managed all of this really intense care. And then a respiratory therapist, like right there at our side. I love it every time I hear a nurse celebrated and then I wish we were also celebrating our respiratory therapist because um, they're they're right there with us. Um, so that's my first thought. I'm just, I'm grateful that A, I was able to participate because um, I think as a nurse, I've always had that inkling, like I might get called on and we did. Um, and so I'm glad I was working in the unit I was, at the hospital I was. We never ran out of PPE. We had a great team um, and just that sense of community and we're in these trenches together um, is the, the main thing I'm grateful for. The other feelings I realize 
we need to process. We need um, a chance to really let this settle down so we can not be braced for the next wave and start to unpack this trauma um, that we've all gone through. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I see you, Nurse Charlotte. Garwood is going to hang with us through the break. We're about to take a quick break, but first I want to give major shout out and props to WPLN senior healthcare reporter, Blake Farmer. Blake, thank you for your reporting. Thank you for joining me in the studio. My Khalil, friend. thanks for having me. When we come back, we'll invite a few more nurses who worked during the pandemic to reflect on the past few years. And we want to hear from you. So tweet us, seriously, tweet us at this is Nashville. Hang with us. This is Nashville. And this is Nashville. Today, we're taking the pulse of this moment from our city as we enter year three of this pandemic. I want to invite a few more local nurses into the discussion now. Joining me are Grace Vicente, ICU nurse at Nashville General Hospital, and Chris Gray, former nurse turned medical student at Lincoln Memorial University. Grace, I want to start with you. You've been a nurse for several decades. So how have these past two years been different for you? Hi, this is Grace, and uh, I'm very honored and privileged to be with you for this interview today. And this is nothing like anything in my nursing career. It's, mm. it's really like I have never imagined anything like this that's going to happen. I have never imagined the closeness I will have to my patients at the bedside. And I have thought that my bedside nursing, I, I did not regret to be just a bedside nurse because I was able to give the care for my patients face-to-face, hand-in-hand, you know, so. Do you feel nothing. like... Do you feel like all of your years of experience kind of prepared you for the past two years? Yes, but not really because this is not this is not something that I I have been a nurse for. I have been a cardiovascular nurse for 17, 17 years and I have worked in this general hospital for 11, 11 years. So nothing like this. Chris, is that something you can relate to? Hey, thanks for having me. Um, I can, it's definitely something that I can relate to. Um, as an emergency nurse, you know, you're always prepared for um, the worst. And we always were prepared for, you know, mass casualties and things like that. And um, in this situation, this kind of, you know, this was what I was being prepared for. Um, but it was incredibly difficult. Um, I've been a nurse for eight years, and um, it was definitely the hardest thing that I've been through. Now, you're currently working in clinical research. You were working in clinical research during the pandemic. Explain to me how that was different from working in a hospital. Yes. So we actually did work in the hospital. Um, so we... Uh, I was one of the lead coordinators 
um, <clears throat> for inpatient treatments uh, for COVID-19. And um, it was it was definitely different from like direct direct patient care on the on the other side, the non the non research side. Um, but I think one of the experiences that I was uh, that we had was we followed the patients in their home, um, followed up uh, post hospital, and I think that was incredibly difficult because, you know, in the hospital there's, um, you know, we ex people you know people die in the hospital sometimes, and um, you know we move on, um, you know, to the next patient that sits in the room, you know, and just kind of. It's, it's difficult, but I think one of the experiences that I had was being in a family's home after one, two family members died. And I think that was, um, that was the hardest, um, that was the hardest part of it. Was it hard for you when you would leave these homes? You know, like you were finished with your shift every night? What type of reflections hit you? Yes, um, it was, it was very difficult. Um, you know, the one thing that we could do is we could just be there um, for them. Um, and um, I think it helped me appreciate the little things more um, because, you know, this is something where some of these people, they were very careful and they wore their masks and social distance and stuff. And then, you know, some people would just get, get COVID uh, for some reason, you know, maybe one interaction. And then next thing you know, like they're, you know, they're died, they died. Um, and I think that was, you know, appreciating the little things and, um, cause we don't know, you know, what's, what's going to happen. I can imagine how hard that is, you know, of the yeah. nurses, one of the nurses we spoke to Kirsten Espayat told us that at the beginning of the pandemic, nurses were getting pizza cards, masks, and a lot, a lot of love. But she told us that stopped. In fact, she felt like things took a turn for the worse and nurses started getting blamed for everything. We heard this from multiple nurses, including Neil Stinson, who is a flight nurse. Never heard of anybody being declared a hero by the general population who stays with that title for very long. Um, we didn't really do anything to gain that type of hero status and we certainly haven't done anything to lose it. Now, Charlotte Gatwood, Garwood, pardon me, is still with us. Charlotte, is that something that you've experienced personally, this, this difference in treatment? Oh, I don't know that I've sensed that I'm no longer respected, um, but it definitely, the attention fell away. You know, we, the lunches were coming and the cards and it, you know, it, it really felt celebrated and appreciated. Um, and I think we're all just so fatigued. Um, that it's hard to keep up that sort of praise and recognition. Now, Grace, how close were you? Are, are you close to retirement? Can I ask you that? Yes, sir. I turned 65 last month. Happy belated birthday. Yes, thank you. And uh, most likely I'll be, I'll be retiring next, next year, 2023. When you, as the pandemic came on, and we're here, we're talking about this change in behavior. Did you notice that? Did you see, like, like, like you know, Charlotte alluded to, and the clip that 
you had a plethora of people lauding you, giving you praise, giving you support, saying thank you for all the work that you're doing. But now that attention has either waned or shifted in focus. Have you experienced that? And if so, what's it been like? I think this is great. I think uh, I was very much appreciated during that time. And I really, really feel good. I feel because... uh, in the past, I was just doing it for a job. Mm. I, was, I was a nurse, and I was taking care of my patients, and uh, that's what I do. But this time, I was, uh, I was taking care of patients more than I'm supposed to be taking care of them. I was taking care of their families. I was taking care uh, of people that are not, you know, the patients did not have, especially those that have been diagnosed with COVID and are in the ventilators, they didn't have no families at the bedside. So I was giving a lot of myself. I was um, suggesting to talk to their families by FaceTime. So their families were so happy to see their family, you know, but nothing like holding them, like being with them at the bedside. Now, this is something... They were, they were so sad, but at the same time, they were happy that they were given a chance to be able to be with them, even just in FaceTime. There was a time when uh, there was no family or visitors allowed at the bedside. So that was very sad. The only person that will be at the bedside will be, will be the bedside nurse. Mm-hmm. Which was you often. Yes, sir. And I felt very passionate and very emotional about that. You know, I can sense the passion and emotion in all three of you when you talk about this. I mean, you've all mentioned family. And you're not only thinking about your own families, but witnessing this this horrible pandemic affecting other families. You know, how were you able to deal with that? How were you able to generate so much strength as you continue to see the partial erasure of some families? Chris, how have you been able to handle that? Um, it's, it's, it's definitely been, it's been difficult, but I think for me, um, it, it, it helped me push me forward. Um, so I had a goal of medical school. I started this journey about six years ago and, um, I deferred my first year um, to help with COVID research um, and also to get married. Uh, we had a pandemic wedding, which was great. Um, and um, it honestly helped just push me forward. Um, and even it pushes me forward today when I'm doing my classes and studying. Um, you know, I think about it, I'm like, man, I really want to be there as a, as a physician, so. Charlotte? When I uh, when I think of all these children who've lost their parents, um, I just I I cry. Um, it, it's heartbreaking and staggering um, to to think about. And then there's times we just have to stuff it away. You can't you can't think about it. You just got to keep moving on. You're, if you're just tuning in, this is this is Nashville, and I'm your host Khalil Ikolona. We've asked you all to share your experiences with nurses or caregivers over the past few years of this pandemic. Emma left us a voice message at thisisnashville.org. She and her husband ended up at the Vanderbilt ICU in November of 2020 after getting into a bad car accident. 
She remembers her husband panicking and hitting an emotional wall. But she said their nurse really came through. Here's what she said, shared. Our nurse came and talked to us for about 20 minutes and shared his own story of how he had also, um, you know, had a really serious set of injuries and, and a long stay in the hospital and how he really understood how it could wear on you, um, just being trapped in this small room and in a bed and not able to move for an extended period of time. And it was just such a lovely um, moment of, of human connection and kindness and empathy in what was a really, really hard season of life. Emma left us that, that voice message at thisisnashville.org. She said, a moment of human connection in a really hard season of life. Grace, do moments like that really make all of it worth it? Yes, sir. It's so worth it. It's nothing like um, my experience that I had this past two years was really incredible, incredible in a way that I was able to appreciate how life is. And, you know, I am an immigrant from the Philippines, and I, I, I'm I sad with all the Filipino nurses, especially those in big cities like New mm-hmm. York that passed away. They came mm-hmm. in here just to be able to uh, support their families, and all, a lot of them have worked in uh, ICUs, emergency rooms, specialty places, and a lot of them have passed away. So... This was being um, talked about in our Philippine Nurses Association of America. This is a big institute. It's, it's a big organization that we have really helped a, a lot of these nurses and their families who passed away. Now, Charlotte and Chris, have you had any colleagues pass away during the course of the pandemic because they were so hard at work and ended up becoming infected? Fortunately, I have not had anyone in my unit who um, who passed away. There's people within the hospital um, who then we served in our ICU, but fortunately for us, none in our MICU. Chris? No, no, we, we uh, did not. When you talk to people from your hospitals or organizations and clinics who did kind of have a close colleague or friend suffer that. What did that do to their morale? I mean, it, I can only imagine that makes it a hard situation and kind of kind of makes it untenable just to, to stand up at that time. I feel like this ties into that hero kind of thread earlier, but I work with nurses and their own family members, maybe against a vaccine. Um, and so even for all that they've endured and experienced these last two years, people very close to them, although they respect them in words, they're not able to understand and really empathize with that position they've been in and and step up to get a vaccine and do what they can to protect themselves and prevent these tragedies. You know, with that, I wanna get a reflection. I'm gonna end with a reflection from each of you. You know, what do you want people to know? What you and your colleagues have experienced? What will help us become better people so we can then, you know, understand that not only do we put ourselves in danger, but other folks. Charlotte, I'd like to begin with you. Anyone who has a platform or pulpit or podcast where where they influence others, if you don't know the research and aren't medically trained, don't speak to this. 
um, move on, you know, put your identity aside and support the common good in our community and protect each other. Chris. Um, yeah, I think, I think the big thing is, you know, our is understanding that our actions um, impact people just like throwing a stone in a puddle, you know, it's a ripple effect. And I think I would um, encourage other people to, to realize that. And um, again, like as Charlotte said, with the, with talking about people with the platform, I think um, that as well, you know, I talk to people um, about, you know, what current research is and, and what it actually means. And I think um, more people who can do that, who can understand the research would be really helpful. And Grace. Yeah, thank you very much for the research. I understood it well, and that's why I'm vaccinated right now. So this is for the whole world. This is a pandemic. We need to really work together as a world, as nations, as communities, and families. Um, this is not a one-person job. So thank you for having us. Really cool. Thank you for being here. But really quick, Grace, I want to ask you one thing. You're the veteran. You're going to be retiring next year. What advice do you have for young people, anyone thinking about becoming a nurse? We've got about 20 seconds. There's really a lot to become a nurse. You have to really start from the very bottom. And being a bedside nurse to me, just because I'm a bedside nurse, and I felt the closeness of my patients. I wanted them to start as a bedside nurse and move on. Don't stay in the bedside. Get a feeling of how you feel like taking care of patients and then move up, go back to school and be able to uh, reach your goals being a nurse, like come in the leadership uh, place. Wonderful. So I I want to thank you so much. That is Grace Vicente, Chris Gray, and Charlotte Garwood. All three worked as nurses during the COVID-19 pandemic. On behalf of everyone listening and those not tuned in, I want to say thank you for everything that you've done. We want to thank everybody who joined us this hour. This is Nashville as a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at this episode anytime at Nashville.org. This is Nashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, Tasha A.F. Lemley. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director and our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. The master minds behind the theme are LaRange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Blake Farmer, Carl Peterson, Jimmy Klosser, Kristen Smart, Neil Stinson, Kirsten Espiat, Chelsea Rip- Riddlespur, pardon me, Angie Corman, Meg Cochran, and Ella Stultzman. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, wherever you get your podcasts. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ekelona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody.